A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti. I thank you for joining us. Now with me in the studio today, it's uh, the excellent Alison Rudd. And down the line, looking radiant, it's Matt Dickinson. Later on, we'll be talking some video assistant referee type stuff, given some of those uh, wonderful officiating decisions the last couple of weeks. Please, no more possum. But we need to start at the place where the uh, Premier League may have ended this weekend, and that is the Etihad, Pep versus Poch. Dicko, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but, you know, I, I imagine there were people out there sort of going, you know, help us, Obi-Wan, Pochettino, you're our only hope to actually have a Premier League race this year. And um, Manchester City just kind of stomped all over Tottenham. To some people, I guess, you know, beating United, that's it, that's over and sort of end the title race sort of yawn. But to me... Actually, the way City are playing, the sort of run they're putting together, there's a, a fascination just in seeing how good they can become. How you know, can they win every game like this? Can they break records? That's that's yeah, that's that's the narrative now, and it's no less interesting to me than a, than a competitive league. Just when you see a team playing in a sort of singular style, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to see it because Guardiola, um, you know, brought that reputation. People as we like to do, question it and pick at it. And um, he's putting together one hell of a retort in a pretty spectacular way. Before we praise City, anybody want to find fault with Spurs? Allison? Normally you like to find fault with City, so uh, I'll just give you a chance to uh, to question Poch. What could he have done differently? What could he have done better? I thought this was this was the crucial game, not, not the Manchester derby. This was the crucial game. Um, Spurs have the ability to... Be fearless, and I felt that if a team was going to halt the uh, juggernaut that is City, it would be a fearless one as opposed to a deeply pragmatic one. And it would be more fun if, if that's the way it came about. And Spurs did have possession, and they had a fearlessness about their lineup and their formation, but their character failed them. They they were petrified, and I can only assume that somewhere along the way, the way that the way they were prepared for this game. They went in there. Maybe, maybe Pochettino just didn't want them to feel. I don't know. I don't know. We all, everyone knows what City are about. So if you're going to go to the Etihad and be brave, they had chances. Spurs. They had possession. They had ideas, and their execution, their their final delivery for every pass was <gasps> shocking. And then they're better. They're much, much better than that. I think probably individually, every Spurs player had one of the worst performances I've seen from them this season. It's hard not to knock Spurs for that sort of collective hysteria of fear. It's contradictory to me that you would go there with an attacking formation and an idea that you could cut a sway through City and expose the occasional lapses in defence that they might have and yet be so um, scared of doing it properly. It, it, was, it was probably the most peculiar match I've seen this season, actually. 
Dicko, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but you go up against City when you play Son and Kane and Ericsson and Alley. That's really attacking. Is it the kind of thing where if it works, we praise Poch for his genius outside the box thinking, but because it doesn't, we don't? Well, I think I think Alison's right in some ways. You know, we've seen we've seen just about every attempt to unsettle City and given Tottenham's strengths, I imagine Pochettino thought he was playing to them by trying to do a sort of front foot, you know, def- uh, very much defend from the front system, try and just, you know, press press for those mistakes at the back. But the trouble is they're hitting the team that, um, well, however much pressure you stick on, stick them under, um, they've, they've got a little answer, which, you know, I, I, and yeah, I, I don't blame Pochettino for that approach, but yeah, combination of coming up against a team in sort of majestic confidence, um, as Alison says, the fact that their temperament seemed to sort of get rattled um, far earlier than the manager can be sort of satisfied with, as has been often discussed, if you're going to try and sort of press collectively from the front, everything has to click right to make make that press effective. And ultimately, they sort of tried to set a trap and, and City could spring it far too frequently. I mean, I was asked sort of, you know, how do you stop City and... I don't know, but very broadly speaking, it seems to me that that there's two ways, uh, uh, or, or there's two two methods that people have used that have worked to some degree. One is parking the bus and then winning the ball back and attacking very directly. That's yielded some level of success because ultimately, as as much as we've praised the development of, and then the improvement of, of Delph and Stones and Otamendi and these guys. You know, the reality is you have two guys back and you bump the ball over the top and anything can happen. Or the other thing uh, is what Shakhtar Donetsk did um, at the Etihad in the first half and Napoli did when they played City as well, which worked for a while, which is, yeah, defend, but when you win the ball, keep the ball, make City chase you, try to try to play through their press rather than rather than attacking quickly where you just end up giving the ball back to them tire them out, pick your spots, and so on. Is this something a better team can do? I mean, is, is, is there a team out there that has higher quality, high-quality players and can play that way in the Premier League, or, or is it, does it need, necessarily need to be a team outside the Premier League? I think Matt mentioned everything's got to click if, you, if you're going to be brave against City. I think if, if, if Liverpool have 11 players and they're clicking, they're best capable of outscoring City in a match. That's, How are they going to get... They, Liverpool can't play out of the back. So you're looking like Liverpool just sitting and... Because the, the way Liverpool's set up, then it just becomes a slugfest, right? There's going to be a team that, I don't know, gets, gets ahead, for example, and you've got to get to a point where City start to start to just lose lose the sort of the, the confidence that they've got at the moment which is you know it makes a, a huge a huge difference doesn't it so you need a team you probably need a team you know a, a decent team that just gets a gets ahead gets a break and city then you know start to start to get rattled themselves i mean there will come a point in the season um you're watching them now it seems you know how can it happen? When can it happen? But it will at some stage where they're chasing the game in a way that they start to get hurried. They start to either overplay or you know get in their own sort of you know temperamental and tactical difficulties. So I think I think it's you know it's, it's looking for one of those occasions when someone just puts their noses in front and City City start struggling to find answers. Say it seems. City don't score from every corner. Do they? It looks like they do sometimes. Okay, so if you, ma- if you make sure you break, you counterattack effectively each time with confidence. Well, you target you Mang- I mean, Mangala's being made to look like, you know, Beckenbauer, and that 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 can't last, surely. I mean, I, I just, I'm, you know, that, that may turn out to be... Um, squad, uh, I was squad trying to break. establish a blueprint, and you guys are telling me things like, oh, score first, and then well, hope that they run out of ideas. That's a pretty good blueprint. What's, what's that? Score more than them. I <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I mean, is, 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 but, but is, this, is this really where we are? We, we can't come up with a blueprint that can work. We can't project and imagine somebody who can who could beat them. I'm talking about you have to develop a, a way of playing against them, right? Is there anybody who has any idea other than score first? Well, it's about, it has to be about the team that's most effective in transition, doesn't it? If you've got the ability to be fast and take the chances you get... There is any Liverpool that can do that. So you're moment. advocating being direct against City. 
No, no, not long ball direct, just No, being breaking, direct, but counter-attack, breaking, breaking quickly. Breaking quickly against yeah. City, yes. The problem with you, when you break quickly, obviously, you risk losing the ball quickly, and then they just get win it back, and then they just come at you again, and then you might not get it again for... For half an hour. Exactly, yeah. and then yeah. you still have you still have Lovren and Clavon back there. Yeah, I'm not saying it would be a clean <laughs> sheet. I'm not saying Liverpool will get a clean sheet. Dicko? We need Wimbledon's crazy gang against them, you know, stick them... Well, no, I, I stick, stick it up them. No, I mean, I, it's, yeah, it's. it's I, I still think it. Maybe you guys. It's a fair question. It's a, if it's an answer that eludes Pochettino, I don't think there should be any embarrassment that it might elude us at the moment. Um, yeah, no, I, like I said, I think I, I certainly, well, I think I watch every single City Champions League game this season, and I go back to this, and maybe nobody out there remembers the first half against Shakhtar at the Etihad, but maybe you remember some of the of what happened in the Napoli games, and I thought keeping possession and making them chase you, you know, worked for a certain period of time. The problem is I look around Europe and I ask myself, because I don't think anybody in England can play that way. I imagine Real Madrid could probably do that if they so chose. They could try to do it, probably more effective, and they would obviously have the individual quality. But I'm not even sure Barcelona could, frankly. Um, and I, I can't think of, Bayern certainly couldn't, not, not now. And that's that's the thing. Like it seems to me that it, it would take either an injury or a drop in form or <clears throat> something like that to to derail City. I'm I don't know. I I'm, I'm at a loss. No, you're probably right. It needs it needs something to happen to them rather than someone to make it make it happen to them. No, I don't want to pick on referees, but I'm about to. Um, this this Craig Parson. I had an idea of who the good English referees were, right? like Taylor, who were being pushed and whatever else, and then the veterans. And all of a sudden, this dude, like, pops up, and he does the Merseyside Derby, and it follows up with this game. And I I don't think he's any good. I thought this was a horrendous refereeing performance. I mean, the Otamendi tackle, the Dele Alley on, uh, on, on Kevin De Bruyne, the, the, the Harry Kane. I mean... Am I, am I wrong here, Dicko? Like, thank goodness nothing happened, but we could have seen a bunch of season-ending injuries, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think they were Kane and uh, particularly Ali were were lucky lucky to um, avoid a red card. There's no two ways about it. I mean, it, and they he seemed to have a decent view uh, of both. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Ali one in particular. Yeah, used to, that that type of movement, that type of connection. Yeah, I think referees are, are trained to sort of, you know, look out for those spot them and 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 uh, yeah, should be should be read without any much argument. So yeah, I mean, I've I've seen enough of him to think he's okay. I don't think he's one of our best, but I've I've, I've not sort of sat there watching repeatedly watching Porson referee and thought. Do we have any insight? I mean, given this was the biggest game of the weekend and pivotal in season, do we have any insight on why he was assigned this game and not? One of the other guys? Um, I don't know. Not for this particular one. I do. I mean, I did actually sit um, when I spent. Um, not sure how entirely relevant this is, but I spent a day at St George's Park with all the top guys, and actually, it was him. It was Paulson. I sat down with and went through. They just wanted to show me how they analyse a game, and you know, I don't know if this is any comfort to you, but it was. You know, it was just fascinating that they went. They would go through every single decision, and I imagine. These decisions, they flag up some for green, which is, you know, we move on. Some for sort of, I think there's a sort of orange, like a traffic light system, which will be a sort of, you know, were you sure about this? And some that were, you know, red for, you know, you screwed this up. And every single decision is is graded and, and has, you know, those that aren't green have to be looked at. And uh, absolutely, he will be required to do serious homework on this and be asked to explain why he made the decision as he did. Was his positioning right? Did he get a proper view? Did, you know, why did he think it was yellow cards, not red cards? So, say, whether that makes him a better referee next week, um, you know, you hope they learn, but it's... There's no, you just know, had a bad day not, in the not office, right? Walk away, he's not allowed just to walk away from it and say, oh, well, you know, job done. He has to answer for those decisions. And that, that'll probably be why he was given this match because you mentioned the Merseyside derby he would have he was the referee for that right mm-hmm. so he would have been praised for having the guts to award a penalty at Anfield against Liverpool 
and he would have been able to explain why he did it. And I know you disagree with me, Gab, about whether it was a penalty or not, but if he's convinced the people who assess him that he did the right thing and they agree after analysing it, that would have given him masses of bonus points to be able to take on another big match. I'm just grateful that nobody got hurt and that we didn't, you know, end up with... We didn't end up with, with the wrong result because of because of refereeing errors. I mean, I think hopefully we can all agree on that, yes? Well, I mean, Ali was punished in a sense because he uh, he made Kevin De Bruyne angry and now we know what an angry <laughs> Kevin can do. Um, people are waxing lyrical over Ederson's passing from the back. We have a whole, we have a whole spread here, the Ederson distribution uh, masterclass on page 10. More significantly, he made Lloris look rather average, didn't you think? Yeah, well, even more significant than that, I kind of think, wow, they have another, they have another weapon now in the sense that that pass to to Sterling in the second half, it wasn't just a long and accurate pass. I mean, he absolutely whipped it. So, you know, so we see goalkeepers sort of punting it out, and it's it, and it, you know the ball hangs in the air, so the defenders have time to come over. But that was that was pretty outrageous. Is is this something he's been doing all year, and I just haven't noticed? A, no one's talking too much about Joe Hart these days, and B, you know, it's all about this back to this confidence thing. If they're seeing a style of play that's developed by your own goalkeeper who can do this stuff, then you know that's got to that's got to be pretty. You know, if you see him fizzing a ball to your feet um, as he was doing from the hand from the from the ground, then um, you know it's all part of a pattern, isn't it? And he seems to be, I don't know. This is I haven't looked at the stats, but he seems to be passing more since John Stones was injured, as if. It's deliberate as opposed to just him growing in confidence. It's like he's filling a slight gap there at the back in terms of that composure. Now, this season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, uh, you not only get our exceptional content, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, and the FA Cup as well. That's right, the magic of the cup. How about that? Coming back in January. Uh, Now, just £8 for an eight-week trial. And in the spirit of that, Alison, what was your favourite goal of the weekend in the Premier League? Without doubt, Mo Salah's goal at Bournemouth for lots of reasons. But the main one being, it's one of those where you know what's going to happen. I think probably everyone watching TV or in the stadium knew what was going to happen. And you're watching the defence and thinking, ah, no, they can't, they can't, they can't do anything. Pinpoint accuracy. He scores with joy. He is the player. Maybe him and De Bruyne are the two players completely on form at the moment. And it's lovely watching a player enjoying his football so much and and sort of know you're going to get something classy when he digs it out like that. It was just beautiful. Just to troll castles a little bit, can you think of something Salah and De Bruyne have in common? Jose Rejects? Oh, yeah. Fuck oh, yeah, that. yeah, yeah. You can make a team at Chelsea Rejects. <laughs> yeah, I know. But the two best guys in the Premier League? Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, Dicko, your favourite goal of the weekend? Uh, well, it's probably going to have to be the Ozil volley, isn't it? Although, actually, I was torn because I, the Decore, um he, he's hit, hit that half volley, which I always love. I mean, I don't want to compare myself, obviously, but a half volley. There's something about hitting a half volley perfectly that I think is sort of feels like football perfection but I think you have to go with Oswald don't we it just it was a a peach of a peach um, and um, yeah from a player who we often argue about what he does what he does best um, where his career is going um, beautiful uh, beautiful to see him um, produce something like that Does somebody want to be cynical and point out that Ozil's just Kind of turning it on now, just in time for the January transfer window. And absolutely, he's just turning it on in time for the January transfer window. Um, he's, so um, uh, Arsenal. What are you know? It's the, the fact that the two best players are winding down contracts. Extraordinary, isn't it? It's whatever you think of whatever else has gone on at Arsenal. That is baffling beyond belief. Moving on to Liverpool, who of course won it five times. Now uh, they were playing uh, Bournemouth. Now, Alison, two consecutive draws for Liverpool and that moment when Klopp stopped being sort of funny and mad and became a little bit menacing and whiny, which shows that I think he's only human and he's not switched on all the time. Um, I thought, wow, if they get tripped up here, they could get really derailed. They could get like sucked into the dross behind them and 
all of a sudden you're wondering about top four and all this jazz. Um, that didn't happen. They 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 steamrolled Bournemouth. Were you expecting it? Such yeah. a comprehensive. Yeah. No, because that seems to be the pattern for Liverpool this season: is that they are frustrated by teams that sit deep and hope to exploit um, their weakness in defence. They don't terrorise teams the way City do because they have far more weak points than City do. You can frustrate Liverpool and then they get cross and they go away from home and they meet a team in Bournemouth whose morale seems to be quite low. They were very, very sluggish, Bournemouth, incredibly sluggish. I'm not at all sure what their plan was. I mean, Eddie Howe said afterwards uh, he's not going to um, ditch his philosophy, but it was ni- it was neither free-flowing trying to outplay Liverpool nor nor defend properly. There was nothing nothing going on. It was very sluggish. And Liverpool had a lot of fun with them. And they, this is what they do this season. They get they have a stalemate or, or, or a dull draw. They they get frustrated and attack, and then suddenly it clicks. And but this has happened all season. When Liverpool click, you cannot restrain them. They they look amazing and could easily have been five or six nil, or maybe five or six one because uh, Bournemouth did hit the post with Defoe. But yeah, it was it was it was a very one sided game. Unless you were a Liverpool supporter, I don't I don't know that you get a lot of fun from watching it really. Dico, did did you think that? I mean, it was one sided, but I I looked at those goals in in the first half, and you know, tremendous individual runs by by Coutinho and uh, and, and the Salah goal, Lovren anticipating everybody. But part of me also thought, like, why don't these defenders move? quicker and kind of anticipate where he's going to go and maybe I mean the Coutinho and the Salah one in particular I know they're fantastic players but is that also a case of kind of bad defending too? Well I thought yeah I, 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 yeah, I think it was I mean I, you know Salah one everyone knows he's going to try and turn back onto his, his left foot but that's surely been you know drilled into you for the whole Time before before this game, and you know, and you have to watch match of the day any time for the last few months to know that. And um, yeah, the fact that he's allowed to turn back on it, the fact that he's allowed to sort of drop his shoulder past another couple of players. You know, he's even scoring as he falls over. As Alison says, they're Bournemouth are sluggish. They seem to make sort of mistakes that you could imagine a, a, a decent coach like Eddie Howe has spent enough time in the in the days running up saying, look, this is this is what we need to expect, um, and nothing seemed to go right in countering it. For some reason, the Coutinho angle seems to have come up again about his future and his transfer. Uh, Dicko, is, is there actual, any actual news on why we think Coutinho might move? I'm, I'm assuming it's not going to be in January, right? It, it, why is this a story again? Shouldn't we put it to one side till the end of the season? Well, it's easy to say. I mean, the fact is none of us know 100% what's, what's in his mind. None of us know how much contact there may or may not have been sort of uh, off the books shall we say um we all know it happens so i guess we all think that you know a guy who wants to get what he regards as a sort of dream move to a club like barcelona is not just gonna forget that and just move on and say oh well i'm stuck here for the rest of my life um or the rest of my move in january and go well you wouldn't think so no liverpool are you know chasing trophies chasing top four and i have to say unless Unless the money was sort of just you know, became so ridiculously high that it, you know, you just you think, well, we're never going, you know, we're never going to get that sort of offer again. It doesn't make sense to sell in January. You know, you think if Barcelona want a guy that much, then we, we hope and, and maybe we can even create a, a bigger auction at some stage. So selling in January does not make sense. But I guess say n- none of us think that that issue has gone away. And there's another window about to open, so I think it's natural to at least, pretty... ask, at least ask the question: Is it is it going to flare up again, and when? But it'd be a very weird statement to make to sacrifice Champions League football. I'm not saying it's impossible, but the, I think it'd be very the other the thing biggest is, statement you can make as a player, isn't it? I'm well, forget not Coutinho. To. Look at it from Barcelona's perspective. I mean, unless they lose in the Clasico next Saturday, they're going to go into the winter break eight points clear which basically means they don't really need Coutinho to go and win La Liga. They could probably use him to win the Champions League, but he's cup-tied and won't be allowed to play in the Champions League. So Coutinho's going to watch the rest of the Champions League this year on television if he moves to Barcelona. So just to me, this just makes zero sense whatsoever. The summer might be a different issue, but... 
you know, for now, I just, it just, I don't know, it just struck me as odd. A word on Bormis, we made the point about their defending, and I'm wondering, I'm just going to throw this out there. I always thought the whole thing with Eddie Howe is that they're so well-drilled in the way they moved and, and off the ball and whatever that they're all better than the sum of their parts. But is this the point where actually there is such a thing of being a talented, athletic, technically gifted footballer? And and you know, and then that's an absolute. And if you're not that, if you're Andrew Sherman, if you're Mark Pugh, I, I want to pick on these guys. If you're Adam Smith, if you're Junior Stanislas, you're not good. And you can kind of only exist in in the system where your commitment and repetition and, and whatever else works. And the minute the system breaks down, you're going to be badly exposed. And that maybe he should have upgraded his player. Maybe he needed more. I know Lewis Cook wasn't good, but Lewis Cook is obviously a very gifted footballer. Maybe he should have, you know, with hindsight, maybe he should have upgraded his players sooner. But they have for two years done what you just explained, which is big, bigger than the sum of their parts and be more effective than the sum of their parts. And they did it against Liverpool last season. They proved that if you're resilient and refuse to capitulate, if you go behind, um, if you stick to your formation and the plan of action, you can beat almost anybody. They're having a poor season. They got off to a poor start. And I think that probably affects all those factors we've just listed, all that self-belief, the belief in the system you have, the belief in the coaching. Once you start thinking too much about how you haven't got world-class players in your team and you're up against them, then then you become shaky. That's what they look like. They look like a team that have looked in the mirror and, and taken away the um, the rosy glow you put on it and seen the harsh light. Dicko, if this were another club, you wonder if maybe people wouldn't be wondering whether some of this stuff has... Is some of these guys haven't gone a little bit stale, maybe? They've stopped rising while maybe standards have around them. And I, th- I think, you know, it's, you know, we do have to remember that, you know, Eddie Howe has rightly drawn praise for sort of squeezing pretty much everything he can out of, of, of this squad for a couple of years. I mean, you know, I think they're just one of those teams that are sort of... You look at the, the the talent resources and so on. You feel like you're, you know, under good coaching. They're sort of close to giving their all, and that's that's not an easy thing to maintain. Is that we see plenty of underwhelming teams, underperforming teams around them, and I just think they're they're a team that was sort of felt like they were been giving sort of ninety percent of their capacity, and they don't have to drop much for a couple of years. They don't have to drop much below that to to, to be fighting for their lives. It's a difficult transition to make, isn't it? Like in, inserting new players into what is a really is a really well drilled unit and knowing when to do it knowing when you've squeezed enough out of somebody that you put him you know you, well, what, what illustrates your point well I think you may disagree and maybe I misunderstand you slightly is the way that Jack Wilshire it didn't quite work because he wasn't drilled in it and they ended up putting him on the bench when he would have been to most people their starriest player their classiest player technically Jack Wilshire's a very gifted player sometimes when he was in the team it was disjointed and it lost its rhythm and they sort of went back. They reverted to the Eddie Howe Bournemouth way. They didn't want this star extra yeah, turn. I, I, but I just think, you know, these guys, unless I'm mistaken, they all get older every year. It's an unfortunate fact of life. And at some point, they're not going to be able to produce the way they did. And, if, and, and even your system, at some point, people are going to look at it and it's hard to continually innovate. And if you have talented individuals they can sometimes paper over cracks if you have less talented individuals who are just kind of cogs in a machine once the machine breaks down you're kind of screwed say hello to a new era of mental health care cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100 percent online you'll experience the all-new cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. 
All right, now, in our debate this week, after several, um, I, I thought, several weeks of a lot of uh, controversial refereeing incidents, um, I thought we'd talk a little bit about VAR, not least because there's an excellent column uh, in the game this week uh, talking about VAR um, because it's real. It's it's here. It's been it's been trialed in Australia, in, uh, in the United States since in MLS since July, I think. Um, and all season long thus far in, in Germany, in uh, in Italy, and and in Portugal, and so we kind of have real live examples um, of the impact that it's had. And Dico, I know you you've been an early proponent of this, going back to your time in uh, in, in in the Dutch truck. I think so far, uh, and, and, and feel free. I mean, since I wrote the column, I'll just tell you a little bit what we found is that the problems that have arisen have arisen, I think, largely in terms of people's expectations, both players and, and, and coaches, about what it can and cannot do. Um, there have been issues, there have been technological issues, uh, in, in, especially in Germany. There's been, there have been issues of, of execution in terms of referees still getting used to how things work. Um, but overall, across the board, there have been a significant number of mistakes uh, that would have had an impact on results that have been corrected. We've seen a lot less of players surrounding referees, trying to get them to change their mind, trying to get makeup calls and stuff like that, because you know they they know that it's all been tracked on video. And we've also seen referees reporting back that, hey, actually, I kind of like this because things go a lot smoother for me, and it's easier for me to go and to go and manage the game when I'm not questioned and I don't have somebody in my ear every three seconds. I know you're on board with this. Is, is this what you expected, Dicko? Yeah, the, 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 the good and the bad of it. I mean, I think there are still issues with the uh, the protocol that are, that are still being argued over, quite fundamental issues. I mean, one of them is the, you know, and I've argued it with um, Mike Riley and David Ellery about the, you know, this feeling that there should be pitch side monitors for the system. Um, you know, the actual referee runs over and, and has his own check, which I, I think complicates what should be a simpler system where you've just got a guy you know, in a truck or sitting in a room in the stadium watching the screen and you trust you trust him to see it and, and communicate what he sees. But um, that's one sort of thing that's, you know, that the protocol has already been written and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten because we're trying to, they're trying to get, you know, as many glitches out of it as possible. And that's... But, but Dicko, there's a good reason why Riley and Ellery feel that way, that if the referee has to... When it's when it's not an objective decision like offside, but when it's a subjective well, no, I, decision, well, I think there's a good reason. There's a good reason that they think that there's a de- yeah, there's a degree of conservatism still that they want to empower. You know, the, the, the referees um, should still be in power, but I think ultimately referees depend on support. They depend on a linesman flagging and saying, "Look, I saw something happen, not just an offside, but an, a, a, a foul that was worthy of a red card." I think they depend on that feedback from assistants that's the point of the assistants and i think you know there needs to build up a point of trust that the video guy tells him look you know you've got to take my word on this this is my decision on this is a red card and i think it's just part of the fine tuning of the system but i think overall you know it's been what i expect in the sense that i did a column there was a another var controversy and you know i sort of questioned whether football was sort of mature enough to adopt this at all and i think you know even the best possible system of vr is going to throw up anomalies and and sort of gray areas and difficulties and football being football will you know jump up and down and throw tantrums and, and squeal about it um but overall will it help those guys in the middle who are trying to do an impossible job yes it will and yes it must well it, it certainly has what we've seen is that we've had less of them than we've had controversy over over wrong decisions and uh, and and over mistakes. Um, Alison, I think that the point that I mean, and you're a qualified referee here. Um, the reason that referees, I mean, right now, when it's a decision that's subject to interpretation, and again, a reminder, they only review goals, uh, red card situations, penalty kicks, and cases of mistaken identity, which neither here nor there. Um, but three of those four there will often be 
a degree of interpretation and, and of subjectivity. It's not going to be clear cut. Two different people can look at something and come to different conclusions. And so the belief is that for continuity that the referee has to has to be the one going and, and looking at it, especially because the way the protocol is written, the rules say that a decision on the pitch can only be overturned if there is, quote unquote, a clear error. So the referee has to agree that he has made a clear error. Does that make sense to you? Well, I, I like I like the fact that there is an awareness that referees can't be undermined. But at the moment, the stage we're at, this mood comes through in your column, Gab, is that it's quite exciting because it's it's experimental and it's new and we're finding out things about it and we're finding that good things happen, that decisions are made that were the right decisions that might not have been made without the VAR system. But if you have a new drug, a wonder drug, that cures um, obesity, for example, or diabetes or something, you don't release it on the public until you've tested it and tested it for side effects. And we don't, while it's fun at the moment, we don't yet know what the long-term effect of VAR is going to be on refereeing around the world. Because if long-term, it means that referees feel there's an extra burden on them to to realise that there is scrutiny. Things they might think are 100% clear to them, they're being told in their ear, actually, do you want to think, think about that one, sir? Because looking at the monitor, you might be completely wrong. What does that do to your head? And then you have to say, OK, yeah, maybe you're right, maybe you're right, maybe you're right, I didn't see, I didn't see that left leg take the right leg. But you didn't see it, and then you're having to think on your feet in front of baying crowds about what you did and did not get wrong over the years what effect will that have on football the flow of football the way referees feel about wanting to do the job we don't we have it might be absolutely miraculous and wonderful and referees might zip into it and it have no side effects at all but I think at the moment it sounds quite exciting and fun while it's experimental but when it's out there I'm worried about how it will impact on at the moment to be a referee you have to be quite an odd individual you have to be really bolshy and almost sacrificial about it you get so much abuse without much of the reward you're sort of infamous rather than famous people are more likely to pick on you for getting things wrong than praise you when you get things right the best referees are invisible we only talked about Paulson in this podcast because he missed a clear red when Delhi Ali nearly broke De Bruyne's leg you have to be a strange person to want to be in that spotlight week in week out and I don't know if VAR will make that better or attract the wrong characters to the game that might be a side effect it might be you get lazy referees who think it doesn't matter I can do this and earn an easy wage because I've got VAR to back me up just putting it out there it's not as if they're going to the VAR monitor every two minutes right so there's what they call silent checks because the people are watching continually for stuff that might have been missed but there's the number of calls in the course of a game that are even subjected to or, or could be affected by VAR are very limited. So you've got the objective ones like the offside where nobody's going to argue because it's it's, it's like the, the goal decision system. And the subjective ones, there aren't that many of them in the course, in the course of a game. So I don't think the referee necessarily feels um, under scrutiny that much. And actually he can devote more time to to managing the game and ensuring that the game is... Um, the, the, the game's conducted is conducted fairly. You know, in terms of sort of self doubt on the pitch or whatever, the fact you know they know, you know, from the players' reaction, fans' reaction or whatever that you know there's a sort of howling around them, and you know you you only have to speak to um, referees and you, uh, I've spoken to people at Howard Webb and many others about it is that they spend obviously spend the next ten minutes thinking, oh God, have I have I you know, dropped dropped a nightmare and they run off at half times, you know, scampering off to speak to whoever to sort of find out, oh my God, you know, when I gave that penalty in the thirteenth minute, you know, did I did I screw up big time? So it's you know, it's it's in their minds in any way, in, in any case. Uh, and only the very you know, however good you are, however tough you are, it's pretty hard to get that out of your mind. So I think, you know, the fact that you know from a guy with a monitor, you know, he can say, Yeah, you were bang on there, don't worry about it. Or he can say, actually, you didn't get a good view on this. We need to overturn your decision. Most, every referee I've spoken to says this system has to be investigated, has to be introduced. All that we're arguing about is how it's done and the best way to do it. I haven't met a referee yet, professional referee, who says, you know, 
chuck it in the bin. We don't want it. You know, they've all had different concerns about how it's going to be implemented, but none have said it shouldn't be. What do you think in 20 years' time will be the impact of having it? Do you think we will have a clutch of referees who are as brave, if you like, as the ones we have now? Or will, will the profession change? You know, none of them want to have their decision overturned. Part of the training, you know, absolutely, and they say this explicitly, part of a, a key challenge of introducing it is still training people to make decisions because that's, you know, ultimately, you know, it's not the system. It ain't going to work if people are just sort of shrugging their shoulders and thinking, oh, some bloke in the, is going to buzz me in a minute and say, you idiot, you, you know, you missed something. So, that, that, you know, that's one of the challenges of implementation is that there can't be a, a passing of the buck. You still have to train referees to make decisions. What you're doing is just, uh, you know, and again, Gab's column makes this clear, is that, you know, we are talking about potentially overturning, you know, one, two decisions per game, absolute max. You know, the whole point of it is that it's, it's sort of used in, ex, you know, extreme and, and only a, you know, a very few instances. You know, we cannot produce a, a generation of, you know, buck passing rest. The system will start to break down if that, if that is a result. And I know they're conscious of that and conscious of part of training that that can't happen. And ultimately, say, who, who wants to be a referee who gets it wrong? You know, you still, you're still trained to make, to make decisions and to, to make the best ones you can. And also, if you're talking brave decisions, I take you back to Mr. Pawson and, and Dele Alley. So it's one of two things. Either he didn't see it or he wasn't brave. You know, I, I, to me, it's pretty cut and dried. I think what we are seeing is we are getting a sense after roughly a thousand games with VAR about certain things that need to be in place. One, I think the VR booth has to be in the stadium. I mean, they have to feel like they're part of the team. One of the problems they've had in Germany is that they decided to go and put all the all the VAR guys in some central command center in uh, in Cologne, and the communication with the guy on the pitch hasn't been good. They've actually had stupid technological problems, which you wouldn't expect from Germany. They've also had technological problems um, with the software that does that does some of the offsides. There have been mistakes there, and of course in Germany they also had a problem where the guy was put in charge of it, Helmut Krug was later sacked for trying to, uh, or removed, I should say, for trying to influence uh, the assistants. I think what's obvious where it's worked best is because in the booth you've got two sort of video operators and you have, usually it's, it's, it's a referee, over the course of a season, rotate the referee so that they're on the pitch one week and in the booth the other week and really create effectively a team spirit, a spirit of collaboration. It's a real eye-opener when you hear the, the communication between the two of them. Uh, and you really get a sense of of how it works. The ball and play time has improved in Italy and in Portugal. I, I don't know about Germany, although it was pretty high there to begin with. And that is simply because there is less arguing. And I think that's a that's a positive for for anybody who who likes football, who likes to see actual football played. So despite the delays with waiting for the VAR and the guy walking over to the side of the pitch, overall. Over the course of a game, the actual time of football being played has actually increased. Obviously, Infantino wants to have this at the World Cup. They'll, they'll be uh, deciding in March. My concern is that because at the World Cup, you've got referees from all over, you're going to have referees with very limited experience with VAR. And I wonder if that could be problematic. We saw it in, um, in the Club World Championship, which I know you all followed so closely. But uh, I think it was a Brazilian referee, Sandro Ricci, in, in the semifinal when uh, um, Al Jazeera played, played Real Madrid. He, there was a Casemiro goal that was disallowed, and, and he ended up watching it. It, it just ended up taking just, just – it felt like it was ages. And I think part of it is – I don't know who was in the booth, but it didn't look as if they'd had much experience using it. So I, I think it's still a question mark whether we'll see it in Russia. I, personally, I, I hope we do because – that is one context where I can deal with, with games lasting a little longer and waiting a little bit longer for, for the right decision. How about some quick hits? Manchester United keep pace with City by winning 2-1 at West Brom, but folks are now questioning why Lukaku isn't celebrating and other such nonsense. Alison, why are we so preoccupied with this stupid stuff and Lukaku's goal celebration or lack thereof? Shouldn't we talk about more important things? Uh, like Brexit. Now, this is the antidote to Brexit, isn't it? why Lukaku's um, so subdued. 
he might he might not want to celebrate against West Brom, but it doesn't explain his previous lack of celebration. Mourinho says it's because he's taking his cue from his grown-up manager, and they've decided only celebrate really really important goals in the in the last three few seconds of the match. It does matter because he looks he looks like a player for whom the criticism has got to him, and you rarely see that in players. They might be off form, but they try not to show that it hurts when people have been saying they're a flat track bully or not worth a dosha. Maybe he's just superstitious and has noticed that since he stopped celebrating goals, he started scoring them again. Could be so many things. Arsenal overcome Newcastle. Thanks for stunning Mesut Ozil volley. Uh, And we see Jack Wilshere play well too. Dicko, I bet you'd forgotten all about Jack Wilshere. Is there any chance Arsenal do anything significant this season? Is another false dawn? Is Wilshere's return, quote, like a new signing? Well, we've got Wilshire who um, doesn't know what his future is. We've got Ozil, who doesn't, well, probably doesn't know what his future is, and we can question whether it's anywhere near Arsenal. We've got uh, Sanchez in the same position. So, yes, um, same old Arsenal, isn't it, really? A, a, you see a bit of wonder every now and then, and it comes with a, a, a boatload of trouble, doubt, and uh, upheaval and uncertainty. Wilfred Ndidi dives in a 3-0 defeat to Crystal Palace and gets sent off on his birthday. <laughs> Allison, he's actually one of my favorite players in the Premier League, and I think he's really good. Um, but do you have any sympathy for the Leicester-holding midfielder? Yeah, no one wants a rubbish birthday. I think, in a way, a lot of good can come from what happened. It's a reminder that he is only 21, and he plays uh, as though he has more experience than that. Also, he's admitted that he did dive. He's not even... I think that's a sign of someone who's mature. He's admitted he made a mistake. And it's one of those high-profile incidents which I think will mean a lot of players will think twice about... This is the whole point, isn't it? It's to make players stop and think, it's not worth diving, actually. I'm going to get banned. So I think he had a horrible day. I think it'll make him a better player and will help the game. Speaking of Palace, Roy Hodgson is finally getting some breaks and a bit of good fortune. And Christian Benteke scores, though he also says he's not sorry for events the previous week when he insisted on taking and missing a penalty, even though he wasn't the designated penalty taker. Uh, Dicko, do you understand any of this? Oh, uh, well, I understand. It's it's Palace um, under Roy having an upswing, and it's great, isn't it? I mean, Zahar obviously is a key factor in that. Um, I dared to tweet the other day that it was nice to see uh, Hodgson and Moyes, you know, enjoying a, certainly a, 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 a nibble of redemption. And because, um, yeah, I think they're guys who deserve a bit of a, a break and an upswing. And I got absolutely battered um, for <laughs> suggesting it. Sunderland fans calling me an idiot, Liverpool fans going berserk. Um, so I apologise for saying something mildly nice about um, two long-standing and, and in my experience um yeah hard-working if you know flawed but hard-working and possibly even able football coaches mark ornautovic does his best ibrahimovic impression against his old club and uh, uh west ham win at stoke allison it's looking pretty bad for sparky but what do you make of the poor man's ibrahimovic who plays alongside the poor man's coutinho manuel lanzini um i had no idea management was that easy all you have to do to an overpriced striker who's helped get one manager the sack is to call him into your office and say, you've got to work harder. And apparently that player then turns around and says, OK, we'll do, and then starts looking like he's going to lead the line for you for the rest of the season, make sure you finish well outside the relegation zone and become something of a cult figure overnight. Remarkable. Do you think it was Moyes who did that, or do you think he got like Stuart Pierce to hide in a closet and jump out and scare him? <laughs> oh, I'd like to think there is more to it than that, but that's the story they're giving, isn't it? A Marcos Alonso free kick gives Chelsea all three points as Conte leaves Morata on the bench and goes with Hazard, Pedro, and William up front. Dico, is this a viable alternative setup, or do you actually need a centre forward long term? Um, this struck me as the um, sort of team selection a manager might do if the transfer window is looming and he wants to sort of do a big flashing light over his team and say, I want another striker, give me another striker. Um, so, I mean, it, you know, the Chelsea won, so all ends well. But um, I suspect um, that there is a bit more wrangling to come around Chelsea bet- about transfers, transfer targets, and um, a manager who, yeah, wants 
pounds money spent. Gab, I have a question for you. We have a new world champion. Drum roll, it's Real Madrid. Should anyone care beyond VAR? What does VAR have to do with Real Madrid becoming champions of the world for the sixth time, which I believe is a record? People joke about the FIFA Club World Championship and like, oh, these rubbish teams in it. But the reality is, it's the champions of Europe playing the champions of every other confederation. And whoever wins can call themselves world champion. Going and belittling it is a little bit like sort of uh, back in the day when English clubs wouldn't play in in the European Cup because they thought it was all rubbish and they were the best anyway. Uh, No, you got to go through the paces. You have to go and uh, and beat these teams. I'll tell you what, Real Madrid played their best lineup. They had a tough time against Al Jazeera because they ran into an outrageously good goalkeeper who made who saved everything. He looked like something out of a cartoon. And then he got injured, and only then did they win. And in the final against Gremio, Gremio were terrible, um, I thought, uh, uber defensive. But even then, the margin was uh, was a Cristiano Ronaldo trademark free kick, the 34th of his career, I believe. So, so no, well done, Real Madrid. They were the best team in the world probably before that. And, uh, and now they're world champions. And I say we're in the past tense referring to last season. Obviously, City fans don't get in my back. If you can win the, if you can win the Champions League, and then you'll get your chance. And uh, by the way, you know where they play the Club World Championship? Bolton, isn't it? No, not Bolton. Abu Dhabi. So wouldn't it be cool if, if, if City win the Champions League and get to go and and effectively compete to become world champions on their own home turf? It'd be easier for the fans if they did it in Bolton. No, it'd be easier for Sheikh Mansour if they did it in Abu Dhabi. <laughs> I wonder if he'd actually, given he rarely goes to games, I'm, I'm sure he'd show up if he was, uh, if was in his back garden, right? Unless he was having a siesta, yeah. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many, many thanks to my excellent guests uh, in this festive season. It's uh, the very festive Alison Rudd and the even festiver? (laughs) (laughs) The even more festive Matt Dickinson. Remember, it's just eight pounds for an eight-week trial. Uh, You get access to all our excellent content and uh, uh, you can just search the times online. This season, in addition to our writing, you can access highlights of every game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, and the FA Cup as well. We're going to be back on Christmas Day. Actually, we won't actually be back on Christmas Day. We've actually pre-recorded some podcasts for you to uh, enjoy during the festive season. And I'm going to be here. Alison, you're going to be here. And you know who else is joining us? Chelsea reject Henry Winter. Ah, you're referencing Chelsea reject because the two best players in the Premier League this season, Mohamed Salah and Kevin De Bruyne, are both Chelsea rejects. Uh, I don't know if Henry Winter is, but he's certainly, to us at least, he's the franchise. He's joining us, and uh, we're going to be issuing our half-term reports for the Premier League season. Have a happy holiday season. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Thank you.